James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 this morning. We only have two sermons left on the book of James, and a lot of people said, finally. But James is just, it, it's, it's a difficult book to make it through because it really hits you at the point of life, and it doesn't give you a whole lot of wiggle room. It doesn't give you a whole lot of, well, you know, I'm sorry, I just didn't know that. I just, you know, I didn't know that, that I couldn't just act however I wanted to. It, you're like, well, we, we've been at James for like four months. You're like, yeah, but I miss all those Sundays. Well, the sermons are on the internet. Yeah, but, you know, I got a spotty signal. I got dial up. Well, you've you got the book in your Bible. Yeah, well, I try and stay away from that. <clears throat> it's close to the end. I'm still, you know, Exodus. It's good. Forty years, I figure I should give it the same treatment. You see, James is one of these things that, man, it just, it assaults our way that we want to do things, right? It assaults the very uh, selfishness that we find ourselves so given to. It assaults our, our minds and the way that we think. It assaults our tongues and the way that we speak. It assaults our pocketbook and the way that we spend our money. But there's a problem. There's a, there's a problem. You see, when I first started seminary, uh, also right about the time I got married, I worked at a, at a truck shop. Now, I was low man on the totem pole. I, I wasn't, you know, getting to diagnose engines or any of this, you know, really glamorous work. I was in there painting 50-gallon trash drums and cleaning bathrooms and taking apart all the little parts that they needed, you know, nimble fingers to do. I was like, nimble? That sounds like a lady's fingers. They're like, yeah, just nimble. Anyway, and so I'm doing all these things, but then you get grease all over your hands, all over your face, and it would work its way through my shirt, and I would just be skin soaked with with grease and all of this stuff and at the end of the day I would go into the bathroom and I'm I've got you know, like the industrial sized bottle of fast orange and I'm scraping trying to get this stuff off my hands I've got it in the shower because I'm not going to get it all off at work and I'm I'm just scraping and scraping trying to get all this stuff off but there is some of it it's just not coming off I mean this thing is it's beside the bone it's just it's not coming off it's just going to have to stay there for a little while and that's the that's the result of, of being in that line of work. I was stained, and it gave evidence that I was stained according to the occupation I had at the time. Now, the same, things happen, the same thing happens to our souls. We go out in the world, we watch television, we have our job, we do all of these things, and we are stained by the impact of those things around us. You know, James gives us a picture in James 4, 1 through 10 of what that looks like, and he also gives us a corrective. He gives us a way out of that. And so let me read for us James 4, 1 through 10. James writes, and he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Whew. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, is hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 5, or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. James has been kind up to this point in, in this letter. I mean, he, he said some things, you know, like rejoice uh, when you encounter various trials of many kinds, but, but, but he hasn't called anybody an adulterer, right? I mean, he hasn't just fully on assaulted them in the way that he does in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. But James goes after the issue that we find in most churches. And when you boil it down, it's, it's selfishness. He asked the question, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And so he throws that question out to them, and you can imagine in your mind that there's a group on this side, and they're like, what causes quarrels and fights among us? It's those jerks over there on the right side of the stage. And the same question goes to the people over here on the right side of the stage, and they say, well, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And you're like, well, you just talk to them. Could you not figure it out? It's those, it's those punks over there on the left side of the stage. You see, there's this idea that if you were to ask somebody, you say, what causes problems in this church? They'd say, well, it's, there's this one group of people. You know them, I'm sure. And they're like, no, which, which group of people is that? Because you're, you, know, you never really want to assume. And, and you, you kind of get it out there, and you're like, well, you know, can you describe them? They're like, well, they're the people. They're the problem causers. Like, yeah, yeah, but can you describe them? They're like, you know, people. They're like, I really need you to tell me who they are. And so they start describing this group, and you go talk to that group, and you say, I've heard that you guys are the ones causing all the problems. And they're like, no. It's the people that told you we were the ones causing all the problems. And so there's this idea that, that nobody wants to be to blame, but what James does is said, I'm going to solve this problem. Check this out. It's not this. Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? He says, look, it's, it's not the left group saying it's the right group. It's not the right group saying it's the left group. It's you as an individual. I had a friend that would, would tell me oftentimes when Valerie and I first moved to Fort Worth and we were looking for a church, he said, Matt, I'll tell you what, you find the perfect church. Man, don't join that church. You're just going to ruin it. And then oftentimes people in, in ministry, people in seminary would say, you know, church work is just awesome. I mean, it is just the most rewarding, it's the most fantastic thing. But if it, if it weren't for all the people, it would be the perfect job. <laughs> you see, churches are, are problematic because we have people, right? I mean, you guys are like, whoa, what, what's he saying? Does he want us to leave? No, don't leave. I've, I've spoken in this room by myself before, and it's just awkward. <laughs> you see, this idea that James zeroes in on, it. he says, the thing that causes quarrels and fights among you, and he's using you plural, y'all, he says that in your inside, inside each and every one of you, your passions, those things that you want and cannot satisfy, those are at war within you. You have the problem of being selfish. You have the problem of being selfish. He says, you desire, in verse 2, and do not have, so you murder. No. This is harsh. Maybe this is something, you know, just localized to, to James's body, and they're, they're a rough crowd. Some of these guys had prison backgrounds, and so he writes, he says, look, you get, somebody has a piece of bread, you want it, they won't give it to you, you kill them. Let's move on. Let's talk about coveting next. No, I think James is here using a little bit of hyperbole or perhaps writing something akin to what uh, John wrote in 1 John 3, that when we have hatred for somebody, when we look at somebody in, in, in such a way that we have hatred for them, we 
hate every follicle of their being. We hate every fiber of their person. He says, you're, you're guilty of being a murderer. So James says that you desire and do not have, so you murder. You try and find somebody around you to place the blame that you're not able to satisfy what it is that you most want, that you most want. He says you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You see somebody that has something that you want, they're enjoying. We have a three-year-old and one-year-old. I know what this is. And so my kids, Bryce has something, and it's great. It's the best toy in the world until Graham picks up an empty water bottle, and then all of a sudden that empty water bottle is the greatest, best thing in the world. He wants it. Doesn't want his brother to have it. He wants it. And you'd think that this would be one of those things that we would grow out of as we get to be older. Doesn't happen. You have the same problems. You see other people have something, and you want it for yourself. And that leads to more fighting, and that leads to more quarreling. That leads to more disunity in the body. And then he gets to the crux of it. He says, you don't have because you do not ask. What we see here is this group of people, they're trying to to reach their own destiny, they're trying to get the stuff that they want, and they're trying to do it on their own power. And so they fuss and they fret and they wear themselves out trying to meet the end of whatever it is they want. And so they, they continue to try and overcome those people that have already reached to this level. They try and beat down those around them that already have it because they want it to be theirs. They want it to be theirs. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. See, the bad thing about selfishness, the bad thing about what, wanting what we want and wanting it now is that we don't stop and ask God to give it to us. We're trying to accomplish it all on our own, do we not? Because to stop and to ask God recognizes the fact that we can't do it on our own. We can't do it on our own, so we try and do it, but we fail. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. And then inherently there's one in the group that stands up and says, man, I ask all the time and I don't have it. James says, aha, you ask wrongly. I mean, that's, that, that, that seems almost cheating. But he says, you ask wrongly. And now, why is it wrong? He says, because you ask in a desire, in an effort to spend it on your passions. Do you see how far the selfishness goes in this? Do you see how far the selfishness goes that, I mean, For some, they don't have, and they've never even thought to ask. They've never even thought to seek God out and to ask him. But others in the group, they're very comfortable asking. But God doesn't give it to them because the reason they're asking is because they're selfish. They're asking for things that only go to satisfy them. They don't give a second thought about how it's going to affect the other people they're gathered around. You see, as a church, we exist as a group of individuals, but we have a corporate identity as a body. Do you catch that? And so there's no no room for selfishness in the church. There's just not. And so you want things done your way? I'm so happy for that. But how do the other three people that are sitting on the pew with you want things to be done? 
And see, that should be your concern, and that should be what you press for. You're not asking God to do things the way that you want them done, but you're asking God to do things the way that he could most be glorified. Selfishness is the key issue in the church. And then James, in verse 4, he says, you adulterous people. Now, that's, that's not very polite to say today, is it? I mean, you're not going to make very many friends, and you're not going to have very many long conversations. You walked into a room and you said, hello, adulterers. Good to meet you. Allow me to talk to you for a moment about what I perceive to be your biggest problem. James must have read the book, How to Lose Friends and Alienate People, because he's doing a great job at it right here. But he comes in, he says, you adulterous people. Now, why would James say such a thing? Is this a group of people that are entered into some type of wife swap, into some type of swinging group? No, I don't think so. What James is keying in on is this fact. We have one love, and it is God. We have one true love, and it is God. And when we allow anything else to take the place of that, we become an adulterer. We become an adulterer. Because we have, we have misplaced our loyalties, because we have replaced God with whatever it is we want. That selfish thing that leads to quarrels and fights that is inborn in us is more important to us and is more important to this group James is writing to than God himself. And so James rightly calls them adulterers. He goes on, he says, Do you not know, in essence, you should know this, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. He says, when you try and be like the world, when you try and be like the world, when you try and measure your life by the world's standards, you're engaging in hostility with God. So when your sole desire is to, to rise to the highest point of your career, when your sole desire is just to be the best parent that you can be, you want the most obedient children, you want the, the best athlete for your child. Man, I want my kid to be on the all-star baseball team, and I want his his team to go to the Little League World Series, and, and then I want to parlay that into some type of stellar junior high career. And even beyond that, I want him to go to high school, and everybody knows him when he walks down the hall, and they say, oh, he's going to be awesome. And then he goes to the minor league, and then he goes to the major league. And so you've already written it in your minds, and this kid's like two weeks old. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But when we buy into that same mindset that I want my house to be this way, I want my car to be that way, I want my kids to obey this way, I want to go on vacation here, I want to have all of these things met out and all these obligations performed in my life, that's what it is to be a friend of the world. So if you thought it was just recycling plastic and aluminum and separating your, your waste and, and having a compost pile in your backyard, no, those are good things. We need to take care of the provisions in the world. But being friends with the world is buying into the world's ethics, buying into the world's idea of what is good and what is the chief pursuit and end of man. Because if you answer that with anything other than to glorify God, you're being a friend of the world. So he continues and he says, Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so James writes and he says, Hey, look, if, if, if you're a friend of the world, you have hostility with God. And then he intensifies it and he says, Look, I know there are probably other relationships in your life that hostility is kind of a good thing. 
It's good to have this, this edge when you're playing sports or when you're in the business world. You, you have a little bit of hostility that kind of drives towards besting your competition. But hostility with God is materialized, is, is fulfilled in the fact that you are an enemy of God. So you're an enemy with God in an ongoing war. You are an enemy with God in a battle that you cannot win. You simply cannot win when you're an enemy with God. And then in verse 5, he has this curious verse. He says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, you're going to see this translated differently in the NIV, in the New American, in the NLT. Everybody translates this verse a little bit differently because they're really not sure what to do with it. But as you look at it in the ESV, one of the first things we need to observe is he's not making a reference to the Holy Spirit. You see, the ESV translates this with a lowercase s, giving us a clear indication that they don't think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. But how would it read if it did? It would be God being jealous of himself and the spirit that he has placed in us being the Holy Spirit. But this is what he's making a reference to. God gives each of us life and breath, does he not? He sustains us by the human spirit that he has placed inside of us. And when we use our, our energies, when we use our, our lives to be a vehicle for anything else than fully pursuing him, we're an adulterer. We set ourselves up to be an enemy with God. And that life God has given us for the sole purpose of glorifying him, for the sole purpose of making much of him, we use it to make much of ourselves. And read in the Old Testament and elsewhere that God is a jealous God. We kick him to the side. And we choose to value ourselves more than we do him. And in that, God's jealousy is directed towards us because we value things more than we do the Creator. We value our desires more than we do the one who can satisfy. The prophet Jeremiah, writing on this same type of idea, wrote in Jeremiah 2.13. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. He says, They have hewn out, out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, this is what we do when we pursue our own selfish desires. We take the God who gives abundantly, the God who can meet every need before we even know we have it. And we put him to the side. We forsake him. And we try as we might to meet everything that we can conjure that we might need. We try and meet all of our, our, our desires and our pleasures in and of our own energies. And we're a, a broken vessel. We're a wheel with no spokes. We cannot accomplish it. So we get rid of the God who can give to us infinitely more than we could imagine, and we replace it with our shallow, broken selves who can't even guarantee our next breath. Who can't even guarantee our next breath. James goes on. 
and he's, he's building up this deal, and he says that he yearns jealousy for the Spirit, but he gives more grace. See, the good news is, is God gives more grace to us. He realizes there are times when we pursue our own agendas. There are times when we stray away, but God gives more forgiveness. He gives more grace. <clears throat> Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Key in on the word humble. That's going to come back. God opposes the proud. Man, as you sit here and you reflect on your life and you think to yourself, whose end am I trying to meet? Am I following the path that God is leading me down or am I following my own? When you start evaluating your decisions and you think about, you think about where you work, you think about what you have your kids involved in, you think about what you spend your free time doing, Think about your thought life, and you think about what occupies my thoughts in the moment when the radio's off and the TV's not turned on. See, God holds claim to every area of our lives. But God gives more grace to the humble. That God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The humble person realizes they're unable to accomplish these things on their end. The humble person realizes that it is solely dependent upon God to accomplish his ends. The humble person realizes their dependence upon God. And as we sang a few moments ago, they bow down to the ground. Now in verse 7, James switches. And he gives us ten imperatives to look at in the next four verses. He starts and he says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now I had an aunt that used this all the time. And the devil was in everything from, from can openers that didn't work to cars that wouldn't start. Now, that's just silly, right? I mean, it's in Louisiana though, so y'all can, can make fun of your neighbors to the east. But how does the verse start? What does he say? Does he say, Resist the devil? And then, you know, as you kind of get around to it, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. No, he says in the beginning, he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. See, this whole idea begins with an attitude of submission. It begins with a proper attitude that looks at our lives, that looks at everything around us. And it submits itself to God. See, this verse is written in opposites. On the one hand, we see submission. And on the other hand, we see opposition. We see Submission and resistance. We submit to God, we resist the devil. Do you see that in the passage? And so what we're called to do as a reflection of God is to submit to him, to lay down every area of our lives to him. Every area of our thoughts to him, every area of our future to him. Every past mistake, we lay that down before him. We submit ourselves wholly to God, not shielding back any area of our lives, for to do so would be pride. And inasmuch as we do that, inasmuch as we find ourselves in full submission before God, we are able to resist the devil, to stand 
in opposition. And to resist the devil in this sense means to stand against the onslaught of worldliness, to stand against the onslaught of buying in to whatever this world would have us do. When we do that, when we submit ourselves to God, and so he goes on and he, 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 draws, he writes out in verse 8. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, I had, you know, this is another one of these popular verses that, that people use. Way out of context, but people use it all the time. They're like, you know what, if you will just draw near to God, he will draw near to you and he will radically save you. That's just not what this verse is talking about. James is clearly writing to a group of people that already consider themselves to be Christians. James considers them to be Christians. And the word he writes to them is, submit yourself to God. Bow everything you have to God. And then as you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Do we not see this in the picture of the prodigal son? The son who went to his father and said, man, I want my birthright, I want my inheritance, I want to go spend it on however I see fit. He was selfish, right? So he took his money, he took everything he had, and he went to the far country, and he lived up a riotous life. But then there came a point when he was penniless, when he was broke, that he fell down before, and he had to submit himself to a recognition that only the father, only his father, could give him what he really needed. And the text tells us that when he was still a great ways away, his father saw him coming near to him, and the father rushed out with arms wide open, began to kiss him continuously over and over. As we draw near to God, he draws near to us. Man, this is, this is great news. You see, because in this room there will be some that at, at whatever point in your Christian walk, you begin to walk away. And life just got worse and worse and worse. And like that prodigal son, you found yourself wallowing in the pit. And for a long time now, you've tried to make it better. You've tried to redeem some aspect, some area of your life. But man, I've got news for you. You can't do it. But what God is saying to you is that if you'll submit yourself before him, if you'll draw near to him, he will draw near to you. But you see, for others, there's this other side, a side that's, that's far more dangerous and far more twisted. And you see, for you, years ago, you decided that, you know, you might continue to come to church on Sunday and be involved at a nominal level, but business and its pursuits and life and its pursuits were radically just a whole lot more important. And so you put your hand to achieving the things of the world, and what happened? Success. I mean, everything you touched turned to gold. Every venture that you employed yourself to worked out amazingly. And it would seem that God laid his hand upon your life and just blessed you. You see, the scary thing for you is, You've traded the gospel of Jesus Christ for the gospel of this world. You found salvation not in Christ, but salvation in the things of this world. And so for you, 
for you to draw near to God means that you have to recognize those things that you've done, those things that you've put your hand to, the success that you've had, have all been for naught. They've in fact been your great undoing. Submission for you is so much harder. Submission for you means looking at all your success, all of your winnings, all the trappings that your life has brought you. And seeing all of it for the reality of what it is. It's an obstacle to keep you from returning to God. And you refuse to submit yourself to God and therefore the devil continues to win for you by way of blessing. And he, he continues in this passage. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James gives us the picture here that we don't need merely to be cleansed on the outside, but also on the inside, that we need to cleanse our hands from those things that we do and cleanse our hearts from those things that we think. We need to actually be cleansed as we draw near to God. And check this out in verses 9 and 10, or in verses 8 and 9. He draws in on this idea that our very lives need to be changed. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He finds, he finds these things on two ends of the spectrum. He says, turn your joy to what? To gloom. Turn your laughter to what? To weeping. This is the logic that James is drawing in on. There are these things that we did in our, 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 our rebellion. There are these things we did in our quarreling, in our fighting, in our selfishness. And man, they brought us such joy. I mean, they just, when we think about them, we, we think back upon all the awesome times we had, just how exciting it was, how exhilarating it was. This is what James is saying. So we need to look at those times, those experiences that brought us worldly joy. And we need to be so appalled at that display of joy that it is turned to weeping. We need to be so appalled at that display of laughter that it is turned to weeping. So we need a life change. We need to turn our mourning, our, it needs to be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom. And then he ends with this in verse 10. He ends with this in verse 10. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see, he gave us a clue that this is where he was going in verse 6. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then verse 10, when we come to it, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see, James is, is keying in on this same idea that Jesus spoke of in the book of Matthew. When he says God opposes the proud, but he gives more grace to the humble, that God will exalt those who bow themselves before him. But do you see that the attitude and the shape of those that God exalts is what? It's one of humility. It's one that's got no place for pride. It's one that's got no place for advancing his own agenda. It's got no place for putting me first in all these ways. Friends, God calls us to humble ourselves. God calls us to evaluate every area 
of our lives and to bow ourselves before him, to humble ourselves. What path are you pursuing today? Are you pursuing the path that the world lays before you, which scripture tells us sets us up as an enemy to God? Are you willing to evaluate your life, to look at the way that you're living, to look at the way that God is calling you in, and to bow everything in humble submission to him? Because if you do, the word is that he will exalt you. He will lift you up. He won't leave you there at the bottom of humility. He won't leave you there at the low point of life, but he will exalt you if you will humble yourselves. Let me pray for us.